We just finished Ephesians 2, which dealt with our glorious position in Christ. And hopefully if we've learned anything by chapter 2, we've learned that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And the word alone actually means, anybody want to guess? Somebody's listening somewhere. That's great. It means alone. Which means that any stipulations that we might run the risk of putting on the gospel should be very concerning of what it might do to infringe upon the nature of grace. If in any way grace ever becomes, well, I really need to see these good works in your life to authenticate whether or not you're really saved. There's a little bit of trouble there. Because what you're saying is, is it's not a situation between God who has wrath towards sin and Jesus who comes in and deals with God's wrath towards sin. And we just happen to be, I don't know what else to say, except the very graced benefactors of this situation getting sorted out. But now all of a sudden we've inserted ourselves in the equation as if we were necessary to get the job done. Jesus doesn't need us to complete salvation. It all centers upon Him. It centers upon His person. And I'll even go as far as to say from beginning to end in history, all things hold together in Him. He is the pinnacle, the chief, the supreme, the almighty one of which all things are entailed. So with that idea in mind, We're having to throw the brakes on. I know you guys were getting excited because we were covering four verses at a time. And you thought, wow, this horse has really got some giddy-up to it. But we're going to slow down a little bit, and the reason is is because I was looking back through when the last time it was that I taught on this particular subject. It's been four years. And as we all know, COVID did a lot of different things to the church. Now, I don't know about you, but COVID was a very awesome thing for our church. Not because we had it and we're happy. You know, that's one thing. Uh, but another thing is, is the fact that a lot of you have come into our church and become part of this and have become part of Grace Bible Church as a result of that situation taking place. Whether you had belonged to a church that had shut down, whether you had a church where there was a pastor that said, hey man, this is too crazy, and they, they retired, whatever it might be. I've heard a bunch of different stories about things that happened with other bodies of believers in Christ But somehow, God has so orchestrated the events of your life, it has led you here. And especially if you're not a member of our church, it's very important that you understand what we hold fast to as far as doctrinally speaking. I'm going to go ahead and warn you this. This is probably going to be a little bit more head than it is heart. And we need both to be balanced out, okay? So I hope you'll, you'll walk with me on this. What I want us to do is if you have your notebooks, you'll also need your Bibles because we're going to look at the last four verses of chapter 2 so that we get a running start. Does everybody see that big number 3 in your Bible when it starts chapter 3? What? Does everybody see it? Making sure. Now, I don't know about you, but usually if I'm reading through the Bible and I see those big numbers, my brain halts. Maybe that's a me problem. But I know that the number three doesn't help it. So when I come out of chapter one into two and I hit the two, there's a break. There shouldn't be a break. The letter's still going. And when I hit three, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. 
it should keep going. We should let the flow of the information continue. And sometimes we will make some very erroneous conclusions if we allow for the break to happen. So how would the church of Ephesus have heard this? They would have read the whole thing all the way through. We did that one time. They would have had a continuous flow. The church in Ephesus didn't know where chapter 3 verse 1 began. They just knew it was a new paragraph that was going on. So, with that in mind, walk with me please from chapter 2 verse 19. And we're going we're gonna to move forward through here. I'm going to highlight a couple of things for you. And then we need to unpack a couple of key words so you see why this is so important. So then, and this is all because of grace of what Jesus did on the cross. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now remember, before we move forward, the very beginnings of the church starting in Acts chapter 2 were dominantly Jewish. And they're coming out of this Judaism into this brand new way of life, this brand new location in Christ, now having the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's a whole brand new thing that's going on. It wasn't until later in Acts 10 when Gentiles got involved. So that's why he says, your fellow citizens with the saints. Why? Because up until about that time, all the saints were Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. Now you've got this influx of Gentiles. Jews have always hated Gentiles. And there's a lot of, "Mm, I don't know if I want to give those guys a welcome bag or not kind of thing going on, okay? So when that finally happens and they come into the fold, there's got to be some sort of understanding for the Gentiles so that they don't feel inferior in Christ. No, the playing field is level at the cross. And that's what God is doing. This is the brand new amazing thing. And this is what constitutes capital C, church. So moving on, verse 21. Jesus Christ is a cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple, the holy of holies now, speaking in the church realm, in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now, remember this. In whom is Jesus. You are also being built together. This is the Father. And of course, the Spirit. And remember what this does. It's a trinity. So we see at the end of 17, or sorry, the end of 18, we have it all wrap up. The trinity plays this vital part in bringing all of this together in what is known as salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which constitutes believers being part of the church. And also here, what it is to be built into this grand building, this holy temple. So, and this is why we look at that. For this reason... For what reason? For everything he just stated, probably actually from 11, verse 11 of chapter 2, but more immediately from that time of verse 19. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, dash. How many of you read the dash when you read? You ever reading along? For you Gentiles, dash. You ever do that? Here's what's interesting about this. Dash means... I got something else to say. Now you guys should know because you deal with that every week, okay? But what actually happens is, is if you will blitz down to verse 14 of chapter 3, notice what he says. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. 
In other words, because of all the grand and glorious things that were going on in chapter 2, when chapter 3 verse 1 starts, Paul's getting ready to get down on his knees and pray. At least on paper. And so he's talking about this grand thing that God's doing in this brand new building and all the spiritual qualities and aspects that are coming, how the Trinity's involved in all this stuff. And he's like, oh, this makes me want to worship and pray. But, hold on. And so from verses 2 into 13, he has got a parenthetical idea that is necessary in order to further fill out understanding of why God's doing all this cool stuff. Let's try to say it plain, okay? And what it is that's going on the particulars of verses 2 through 13 is what we need to pay special attention to, and we will for a few weeks and develop this out so that hopefully there's a lot of clarity about this subject, okay? Now, real quick, I won't go to that yet. Okay, we're going to move on. Now, watch this, and I've highlighted some words. If you wouldn't mind, I'd ask for you to underline them as well in your, in your book as we go through, because we're going to read this whole thing, and then we're going to start breaking it down. If indeed you have heard of the, what's the word, church? Stewardship. I'm going to ask you to write this word next to it. Dispensation. That's what this word is. We're going to look at it here in just a minute. It's the Greek word, oikonomia. Okay? It's where we get the English word economy from. But notice, if indeed you've heard of the stewardship, the dispensation of God's grace, which was given to me, that's Paul, for you, Gentiles, that by revelation, oh, sorry, that by revelation, notice this, by revelation, that's important if you want to start. Here's the reason why. Paul didn't get down in a bunch of old history books and find this out. God revealed it to him. It's the exact same word, apocalypsis, where we get the idea of the book of Revelation, something being miraculously revealed. It's the idea of the magician finally pulling uh, the tablecloth away and the dishes are still standing. It's the great reveal that takes place. It's that idea. It was given to him by revelation of the Spirit. There was made known to me the mystery. We're going to deal with this word later. The mystery. As I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. And I will go ahead and tell you that both of these are the exact same thing. He's referring to the same thing there. Which in other generations, does everybody see that? In other generations, past, it's the past, was not made known to the sons of men. So this mystery of Christ that's now been revealed for the sake of the Gentiles is a brand new thing that was never previously known that is now having the opportunity to be shown and explained and it's, it's got its place in history ready to go. And Paul is the primary catalyst used by God to do that. So notice, which is the other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed. Notice now, what's that? Present been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. Pause. From what you remember in chapter 2, what we just read, what purpose do the apostles and prophets play in the grand building of God's church? They're the what? Okay, all of you get an F, all right? An F is for foundation. That's what it is. Remember, they are the foundation. Christ is a cornerstone. Everybody remember that? You can look back. Christ is a cornerstone. Notice. The holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Why? Because every church must be grounded in sound 
doctrine. That's why in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It's the very first thing that's brought up. It is by way of priority. So notice, to be specific, here it is. Here's what the mystery is. He tells you. You don't have to guess. It's not like Scooby-Doo and when you pull the chocolate ghost masks off, it's actually Mr. Crothers, okay? That's not the situation. So notice here that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and that's Christ's body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through, how does it come to them? The gospel. What is the gospel? Jesus died for your sins and rose from the grave, and he did that by grace through faith in Christ alone. So now watch this. Of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. It's not something Paul came up with. To me, the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. In fact, that's the surname that we put on this series, the unfathomable riches of Christ. What are those unfathomable riches of Christ? That Gentiles are fellow heirs, that they're fellow members, that they're included in this brand new thing that he's doing called the church. Now watch this. And to bring to light. Now, this is not the same word. It's important to be clear on that. But it's the same idea of revealing. It needs to be illuminated for understanding. We need a spotlight shown on this. So Paul's mission is to show up and not just preach about the unsearchable, unfathomable riches of Christ to the Gentiles, but also he's to be a beacon of some sort. What is the administration? Everybody see this word? It's the exact same word as stewardship previously. And what is the dispensation of the mystery? What's the mystery? The one that was in Christ about the Gentiles' conclusion. Which for ages, everybody see this word. Ages, write this down. Aeon. A-I, long O-N. Yes, today you're writing a long O at church. You ever do that when you're writing a letter to somebody? No, because we don't do that. We type it. Anyway. They don't have long go on our keyboard. Moving on. Which for ages has been hidden in God. Which for ages, notice that this is talking about the past. In ages past, this situation was hidden in God who created all things. Creator. So that, and remember, anytime you see so that in the New American Standard, they're usually, most times than not, giving you a reason for the point that was just expressed that the manifold wisdom of God might now, everybody see that? Present. Pay attention to the timing language. Be made known, revealed, through who? Oh, put it down there, church. Us. This is the privilege of the church. Watch this. Don't lose it. To the rulers, see these guys? And the authorities, in the county of Columbia. Is that what it says? No. In the heavenly places. And in fact, remember that word's italicized. They give you that in order to help explain it. But the more proper explanation is anytime that heaven is mentioned in Scripture, it's always in the plural. It's always in the plural. So we would say, in the heavenlies. Now here's the thing. The rulers and the authorities, we'll talk about who they are later but they're bad. I thought just demons were in hell forever. Nope. I thought that these bad 
celestial beings, and that's what I believe that they are. I don't believe they're fallen angels of any sort. I think they're actually angels of a superior rank who were entrusted by God, and we can get into all this stuff later when we get there, okay? We will. I've spoken a little bit about this before. But in doing that, the church has a special privilege to shine a grand light through the ministry and message of Paul that doesn't just speak to this world, but it speaks to the unseen realm about the wisdom and grace of God towards people. Salvation is much more grand than what we ever thought it was. We think of it, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, rose from the grave. Yes, that's the gospel, and that's supremely important. But God's plan for the ages is much greater than maybe what we've ever given credence to it before. Now watch, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus. Everybody see this word, eternal? It's actually this word, and I believe it should be translated this way, aeon. Or if you look in the, in the margin of your New American Standard, it will tell you, this was in accordance with God's purpose for the ages. That is a perfectly valid alternative translation of that. With the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ. Now here's what that means, is that Christ is the pinnacle of all of that. As he should be, he is God forever blessed. Amen. Notice, Jesus Christ, our Lord, he is Lord over all, in whom we, personal inclusive pronoun, Paul includes himself, we have boldness and confident access. Does everybody remember that access? Everybody remember that? Anybody remember that? I love that part. Let's go back and see it for just a second. Where was it at? Forgive me, I wasn't planning on going there. So sweet like honey. Where does it say we have access? Somebody get out literal word and find it. Where is it? 2.18. For through him, yes, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. And remember there, that Greek word for access means it's like we're being welcomed and introduced into this brand new family. Your son's finally come home. Your daughter is here to stay forever kind of idea. It is a grand acceptance because of what Christ has done in distributing his righteousness to everyone who believes. Now watch this. This confident access comes through one way. It is appropriated by faith in Jesus. That's the only way. So he says here, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your It's all about glory. All of it. Now, let's make some observations real quick. Number one, you will notice, Paul is unfolding for his readers God's plan for the ages. This is why timing language is so important. Anytime that you're sitting down to study a passage of Scripture, pay attention to timing, past tense, present tense. He's saying what's going on in the future here. We need to know those things. Why? Because God already has planned all of those things. And he's trying to give us a glimpse into his chronological, I don't know, I picture somebody lighting a match to a fuse and watching it burn right out until it all explodes. And when it explodes, it's going to explode into his kingdom. Second one here, Paul's stewardship came about by revelation. It was unveiled. The Holy Spirit, being the author of Scripture, carried him along in such a way as to deliver these things to him so that he would be able to turn around and be able to encourage the church with it. Number three, Paul's stewardship involves God's grace with regard to the Gentiles. That's what this whole thing has been about. 
You're saved by grace alone through faith alone. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And oh, by the way, the Gentiles are very much in on this situation, just like you believing Jews are. So when a Jew or a Gentile becomes a believer in Christ, they're now placed in a brand new entity, one new man, which is known as the capital C Church. The fourth one here, the stewardship is noted as a mystery, meaning here's the definition of a mystery in Scripture. Remember, it's not Scooby-Doo, trap wall, walking around in weird mason buildings and finding stuff that gives way. That's not what it is. If I offended anybody, it's cool. Let's talk later. Moving on. The stewardship is noted as a mystery, meaning that it was previously unknown. Previously unknown, Old Testament, not there. The church is not in the Old Testament. That's important for us to understand. It is presently being revealed. Is that not what Paul just told us? It's a revelation. But notice that it's always been true. It is God's decision when He wants to make these things known. And it wasn't until after Acts chapter 2, and this is the reason why He appeared to Paul. Paul fell off of his donkey and his first words were, Who are you, Lord? Which is kind of giving it away there a little bit, Paul. But he knew. He is my chosen instruments to the Gentiles. He's going to come before nobility. He's going to talk to the Jews, but I'm going to teach him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Why? Because he is going to endow him with so much revelation that has not previously been understood that he was used to write 13 books of the New Testament and to unfold the mystery of the church. And that's why when we talk about, key Jeopardy word here, the Pauline epistles, We're talking about all the writings of Paul in the New Testament because they all deal with in some aspect or facet dealing with the nature of the church and how we should understand it. This is why 1 and 2 Corinthians are so long. This is why Galatians is so important to to solidify what it is to be growing by grace. So notice this, the stewardship is called an administration in verse 9. The administration has celestial implications. Celestial, it means something that's going on here presently, right now, our gathering together to worship Him in spirit and truth and to receive the Word of God and to respond with our lives conforming into greater obedience and heavenly thinking in that way has something to be said about powers that are now ruling in the heavenly places. So you thought you just came to church today. You are the church that has a common core building of which you came into. You got juiced up on coffee, you worship the Lord, and now we're here to know it and to go do it. Why? Because it matters not just here. It matters in eternity. Jesus Christ is God's means of reclaiming the Gentiles through the church. One of God's grand designs for the ages is is to bring the Gentiles into His fold, and He does so with a brand new entity. Now again, if this is running too fast for you, that's okay. It'll be on YouTube later. It has a pause button, okay? Now watch this. This is important. Along with 1, 9 through 10, and 2, 5 through 7, this passage we just looked at reveals the role of the church and God's plan for the ages. So do me a favor here. Look over at chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. We spent a great deal of time here, and I was very tempted to buckle down on this word, but I wanted to wait because I knew chapter 3 was going to be gangbusters. So look at verse 9. Remember, this is talking about the unsearchable riches that have been poured out to us, every spiritual blessing that's been given. And remember this real quick. Remember, just if you can mentally remember this or you want to write it down. Notice that God hasn't asked anything of us so far in Ephesians. Does everybody notice that? He hasn't said, now you do this. He doesn't do any of that. 
That doesn't happen until chapter 4, verse 1. Everything he's telling us is blessings of grace in Christ. So he says here in verse 9, He made known to us the mystery, everybody see that word? Of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, that's in Jesus, with a view to an administration. Does anybody want to guess what that word is? Dispensation. If you've got a New King James, hopefully that's translating that consistently. In chapter 3, verse 9, I think it translates it fellowship. That's a weird translation of that. It shouldn't be translated that. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. What are the fullness of times, Paul? Tell us what this dispensation is. Notice the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on the earth. Get this. That's talking about the future millennial reign of Christ. A thousand years on the earth, ruling from the throne of David in Jerusalem, sitting there with a rod of iron, administering justice, love, grace, mercy, peace, all of these things perfectly as a ruler over the entire world for a thousand years. God's goal is not just to redeem people. He's here to redeem that bum tree you got out in the backyard that just won't get any leaves on it. He's out here to make all things new. The grass will never be greener. The trees will never be brighter. The birds will never be sweeter. This is what God's looking to do, is a makeover of the entire creation. That's what He's looking to do. And when He comes about to set up His kingdom, it won't just be an individual redemption. It won't just be a person redemption kind of thing. It is the entire creation at His disposal. That's what He looks to do. Look at, go ahead. Global warming was no problem for Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus just turns it down a couple notches. We're good. He has no problem. Be careful. Let me just say this. Global warming is going to be used as the catalyst to bring in all of this stuff. Watch it. Watch it. I don't know if you guys saw not too long ago, about three weeks ago, in England they started a clock. Did anybody see this? Seven years and so many days and so many hours until all the initiatives in order to make the world right will be into place. Research it. Check it out. Prince, you know, Not Prince Charles, sorry. King Charles was there. He's kind of pulling the switch on the whole thing. This is so great. The reason is it's because he's bought and paid for. So pay attention to this whole thing. 2030 is the agenda, okay? Moving on. Oh, sorry. We've got to look at chapter 2 as well. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. And this kind of picks up in the middle. Even when we were dead... In our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Now watch this. It wasn't just that. Verse 6. He raised us up with Him. So notice, it's not just death truth. It's not just resurrection truth. It's ascension truth. He raised us up with Him. And He seated us with Him in the heavenly places, in the heavenlies, in Christ Jesus. Why, Paul? So that in the ages, everybody see that? Aeon. A-I-O. Longo. N. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's what he wants to do in us. But now he's telling us in chapter 3 who he's going to show that to. The rulers, the authorities, the principalities and the powers. Or let me go ahead and reveal that for you. It's those where at the Tower of Babel, God entrusted the rulership of all Gentile nations to celestial high beings. And he told them, you are to rule faithfully over these things, and you are to steward justice amongst your people. And what you find is, is there is major failure 
in a spiritual realm over these things of which God will judge. And that constitutes a relationship between why we see so much government failure going on all over the world right now. It's not just humans, guys. It's principalities, powers behind them, orchestrating these things. Don't tell me some of these regimes aren't fueled by Satan and evil. They're totally done that. Well, what is the church? The church is above and beyond because we're a spiritual people. And we will actually display His grace. You know why that's important? Because there's so many people that don't believe. And I think it's going to be a time of sadness when God says, look what you could have been and look what you could have had because I was freely given it to anybody who believed. It's going to be a sad day for a lot of people. This is the reason why we need to share the gospel with our friends. So, number one, let's understand the word age. I own, okay? A-I long O-N. Let's understand this real quick. The idea is is a long period of time without reference to the beginning or the end. So, for instance, in Acts 15, 18, he speaks of the times of old, and it's supposed to be like a far back situation. Probably what we might be more familiar with in the situation was the translation eternity. We understand that, right? Whoever believes in him will not perish, but has eternal life. That word is a derivative of that, aeonius. Notice it says here, eternity. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 21 in your, in your Bibles. It's the last thing that's going on there in chapter 3. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. Here it is, forever and ever. Notice your little translation in the margin. Of the age of the ages. Everybody see that? Aeon, aeon is the idea. One upon another, speaking of an incredibly long duration of time. Eternity, forever and ever is the idea. But there's a second definition. A segment of time is a particular unit of history or what somebody would call an age. So, everybody's hands ready? Put them up. We good? Get them worked out. Here we go. <laughs> you guys need to play along. It's more fun when you play along. Here we go. Turn back, if you would, to the left, to Revel- uh, sorry, to Romans. We're familiar with this verse, but I want you to see something interesting about it. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Some of you have got this memorized from something like sword drill or something like that. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. One way this can be understood is a particular unit of time is in the present. Look at chapter 2, or sorry, chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Everybody see that? It's the word age. Do not be conformed to this age. This aeon. And the idea is this present time period that we're dealing with. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Go to your right over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and see this one. This is really important for us to understand as well. 2 Corinthians 4, look at verse 3 and 4. Let's look at that to get some context running. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Why? How did that veil get over their eyes regarding the gospel? Look at verse 4. In whose case the God of this age, the God of this world, this present age, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. In other words, Satan's the one who put the veil there. Why? Look what it says. So that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Notice that. Why? Because Satan is the present ruler of this age, this present age. Jesus says so at least three times in the gospels. How about this next one, Titus? This is a fun one. Titus, go over to the right. You hit Hebrews, you've gone too far. Back up a little bit. Titus chapter 2, 
And look at verses 11 and 12. Again, there's more references. You could get in literal word. I actually went through the entire New Testament and documented every one of of, uh, ages, and then Amy was nice enough to type all that stuff up for me. It was very kind. But going through the Gospels, going through Paul's epistles, and going through everything else and finding out this word age, it is all over the place speaking of a segmented duration of time. Okay, Look at verses 11 and 12 of Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, Jew and Gentile, this is speaking of that mystery that's happened in Christ, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present what? Age. Aeon. This present period of time in which Satan runs it. If he runs it this way, the church is to operate opposite. Why? Because we're not here to be conformed. We're here to be transformed. This present age is to not have a bearing on us. That's how the word is used. It also is used of the age to come. Now you saw back in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10, the coming age is the fact that we, that there would be this fullness of times that comes in. What is that? Millennial reign of Christ. It speaks of a future age. You don't have to turn there necessarily, but I would like you to turn to Ephesians, back to Ephesians 1, and look at verse 21. We did not cover that. Everybody's going to get familiar with their Bibles today. That's okay. Now, all these guys of which the church serves as a testimony against, who have been in charge of ruling the nations, he's actually brought them up before. He just gave us a little cursory taste of what was going on. So look at verse, uh, let's see here. That's a long sentence anyway. So let's look at 20. Uh, What she brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenlies, in the heavenly places, notice this, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Everybody see those four designations? Celestial beings in the unseen realm who exist in the heavenlies right now, who have charge over all the Gentile nations. This is why Israel is God's nation. It's God's people. Notice it says here, in every name that is named, not only in this age, everybody see that? Not only in the present age, but also in the one to come, in a future age. Not just the present age, but also the future age. Notice, it has this interesting thing here, C. I want you to see this real quick because I'm copying this from a Greek lexicon. And I wanted you to see some of the things. I tried to sum it up so it's easier to understand. But it says here, the world as a spatial concept. Now, I scratched my head for a while and, and, and kind of ran the uh, eraser dry on that one. Um, if you see that mark on the side of my head, that's what that is. Um, turn with me over to the right to Hebrews. Go past Titus. Skip over the speed bump of Philemon because it's just a one-chapter book. I'm not saying anything bad about the book. I love the book. Look into Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. We'll start in verse 1 just to get a running start. Why not? It uses the word world, and the definition is it's about a spatial concept. Let's critically think about that for a second so we can see it. Notice verse 1, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Pause. Is that Old Testament? It is. Everybody see that? Look what He says, timing. In these last days has spoken to us in His Son. Why is that? Because the Old Testament was a precursory that was in order to prep us for Jesus Christ. 
He shows up on the scene, and as soon as he shows up on the scene, the last days are in effect. Do you think we're in the last days? Yes, we have been since Jesus showed up. The Bible tells us that. So this is the situation. It says, He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things. Notice that's got to deal with royalty and His dominance over them. Through whom also He made the, what's the word? Ages. He made the ages. Now here's what I think He's talking about. He made the past ages. He made the present ages. He made the future ages. All time and history as it would be unfolded according to God's plan finds its culmination and creation beginning and end in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's speaking to. Is it okay that it's translated world? Sure, but notice that even they are giving you a little number off to the side in order to better explain that. And it says literally it means ages. It's plural. Move over if you would chapter 11. This is the last one we'll look at regarding this word. Dun, dun, dun. Chapter 11, verse 3. This is the hall of faith chapter of those who lived trusting God regardless of their present circumstances that His promises stand. Look what it says in verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds... What is that, church? Ages. Everybody see off to the right? If you got the New American Standard, look over to the side. Literally, it's the ages. By faith, we understand that the ages were prepared by the Word of God. That means all ages. In fact, when it's talking about that, it's talking about God doing it before time even existed. God created time for our convenience, not His. He doesn't need it. He's not bound by it. It has no control over Him. It's amazing that we get the chance. Just think of it for a second. We get the chance, the opportunity to cull through the Word of God and to put things together regarding timing. We actually know how stuff ends. We actually get it. The world's scared to death of a nuke that's going to hit somebody somewhere at some time that some person supposedly has that nobody's ever seen before. That's a lot of question marks to get scared about. But when you know that Jesus Christ is going to call the church up to meet him in the air, and then there's going to be seven years of absolute hell on earth that's going to go on, and then he's going to return to decimate all opposition and establish a kingdom of absolute righteousness, i got a lot of confidence in that. It's verified time and time again, and the Word of God has never, never been proven wrong. Something to say about that. The world certainly has nothing to say about that. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God. Why? So that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. In other words, there wasn't previous Legos available of which to construct these ages. God spoke and the Legos appeared. It's every child's dream, man. Notice, ages is probably a good understanding of that. Why? Because it's talking about the successive durations. In fact, if you look at it, all these references point to time and duration. Now, I hope that wasn't too much for you, because there's more. Let's understand the word stewardship or administration. It is the Greek word oikonomia. Again, I encourage you, if you're somebody who loves to write stuff down and you want to get all this, just hang out on YouTube and check that out after this is posted. It's good. Oikonomia, the idea of is a responsibility of management. Remember, this is where we get our English word economy. How is the economy doing? There must be a failure in the responsibility of management, right? Clutch your gold, people. It's good stuff. Number two, state of being arranged. It's an arrangement or it's an order or it's a plan that has been set out. 
Charles Ryrie says, a dispensation is a distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purpose. So God has a purpose going on, and he's got something that he wants to manifest and fulfill through time of which he wants to do so. So in each one of these ages, each one of these dispensations, there's a certain responsibility that's given of which we will develop more next week. It has the idea of the management of someone else's business. If you're a, if you're a business owner, you got people underneath you. And there's certain relational guidelines that take care of that. Well, God, being a gracious creator and father, actually takes the time to entrust to his creation the management of people, the management of governments. We'll see how this unfolds. This word is a compound word, oikos, meaning house. But it's also got another word added to it, nemo, which is to manage, to manage the house. Some people would say that it's from namos, which means law. So it's a house law or a house rule or how God decides that he wants to run his household. Do any of you in here run the household? There are certain things you expect. Get Kevin, you don't run your household. Sit down. <laughs> Lisa, raise your hand. There we go. Those socks don't belong on the, dirt, on, on the floor, do they? They're dirty. I know some of you guys are like, man, why is he getting all personal here? They don't. I hate to tell it to you. There's actually a basket for that and a bigger basket of which water goes into later. Okay? Put them there. Why? Because that's the structure of how it's set up. That's how things have to be run in that situation. In various forms, this word oikonomia, sometimes it's oikonomos, occurs at least 20 times in the New Testament. Now, this word speaks to, number one, an entrusted authority given to mankind. A management that takes place. Again, if you're a business owner, you understand this. If you've raised kids, you understand this. So have you ever done something? Have you ever, have you ever like talked with them? It's like a big step. And then you, you take the time to go, now I'm trusting you. You know, like that's supposed to mean something to them. They're like, whatever, candy gum. You know, come back with it in their hair. We get it. So, but here, this involves a stewardship of another's possessions. So whatever responsibility God has put on mankind, the world is God's first. He's just entrusting it with us. Our money is God's first. He's just entrusting it with us. Our possessions are God's first. He's just entrusting it to us. He owns everything. How do I know that? Because all things are going to culminate in his. And he's not a thief. He's not like, well, you guys messed up on that one. I'm stealing that from you. It didn't originate in us. It originated in him and it is given graciously to us of which we are to oversee it faithfully. Responsibility is paramount. This is just life lessons here. The idea that if I'm going to entrust you with something, you need to be responsible with it. There's a hierarchy in place. There's a creator and his creatures. There's an owner and there's an employee. These concepts aren't strange for us. Number two, anytime that you have an entrusted authority, there's always a testing involved. There's always a watchful eye or an evaluation that's coming up of some sort. Number one, faithfulness is the standard expectation. God establishes faithfulness. He is truth. He doesn't just declare truth. He doesn't just put forward truth. He is truth. In doing so, he sets the standards for how we should think about everything. If we uphold that entrusted authority, if we're faithful in that situation, it will bring blessing and reward. But if we are unfaithful, if we fail at the responsibility that he's entrusted to us, there will be judgment and there will be removal. And we see this occur with Israel 
few times. So what is a working definition of a dispensation for our help that includes these two concepts? Because they're talking about ages and they're talking also about a governmental structure. A dispensation is a period of time, an aeon, during which God is testing man's ability to govern the earth. It's the best definition I've found. A dispensation is a period of time during which God is testing man's ability to govern the earth. If it's God's and he's entrusting it to you, there's going to come a time where we've got to come back to him and say, hey, here's how I took care of it. Here's how I did this. You know, you, you commissioned that this needed to happen. You said this is the way it needed to play out. I have a responsibility in relation to you now because you're my creator. You're the authority, and I am not. Now, I'm going to give you these. What's that? It goes kind of with that yes, but that deals more with an evaluation of eternal rewards for believers and how faithful they were. So that's how I see that. I don't see that segmented to Israel. It makes no sense if it, if it, if it goes towards Israel. So now, this brings me to what is commonly known as dispensationalism. Essentials of dispensationalism. If, you're, if you know this word, and you're immediately gritting your teeth and you're reaching for the Pepto-Bismol, calm down. I found that a lot of things that I've read about what people think that dispensationalists believe are actually not true. Or they found somebody who held to dispensationalism and they believed this kind of like strange truth out here in left field and they grabbed that and they wrote an entire 400-page book talking about how wrong and ungodly and all that kind of thing people are. The, the purpose is not to be combative here. I'm going to give you six things that I think are vitally important for us to understand from this. Now, understand, when I say that a dispensationalist, someone who understands that the Bible progressively unfolds itself through ages and stewardships that God has done from Genesis to Revelation, understand that I'm not saying that anybody that would disagree with this doesn't believe these things. I'm not saying that. Understand that. This isn't a, we believe this, you believe that. I'm not trying to create a dividing wall that Christ broke down. I'm trying to come to a better understanding of what Scripture has to say as it is unfolded when I read it from beginning to end. Okay? So let me give these to you. Number one, the Scriptures are inerrant and therefore authoritative. That's not saying that anybody that doesn't hold to dispensationalism doesn't believe that. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying you've got to start with an authority in place. You've got to start with guidelines. If we're going to sit here and say, well, man, I really believe that the Gospel of John is true, but I'm not so sure that the book of Daniel is true. Well, then we got a big problem going on because what we're saying is, is that God spoke authoritatively in one part of the Bible, but he wasn't so serious in another part, and so therefore you can fudge on a little bit. No, across the board, we call it verbal plenary inspiration, and it's the idea that from beginning to end, God's telling us the truth. And if he tells us the truth, he knows what he's talking about. And if he knows what he's talking about, the most dangerous thing we could ever do in our lives is not heed it and not listen to it and not read it. That's how you make mistakes in life. Wisdom has already been unfolded in the pages. It's the neglect of the wisdom that God's given us where we find ourselves with our feet in a bear trap. That's a problem. Number two, the Scriptures must be understood in a literal fashion, taking the words for what they plainly say and interpreting metaphors and figures of speech as the original author intended. Whatever the original author of Scripture wrote down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is what that passage means. That's important. Let me give you some examples. Turn to Psalm 98, verse 8. Psalm 98, verse 8. 
Look what it says. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Anybody ever been standing next to a river that went by and it stopped for a second and went? No? They call, okay, real quick. They call that Cascade Mountain. But I'm kind of thinking we should get a campaign together, call it Cascade Glorified Hill. What do you guys think? Okay? But we're not going to go up to that mountain and that mountain's going to be like, Praise God from whom all blessings. Where did that come from? The mountain just sings. I don't know. It's like the singing bush in the Three Amigos. It just doesn't happen that way. It doesn't. Now, as somebody who's reading that, I'm not going to say that I'm such a literalist that the rivers really are going to clap their hands and the mountains really are going to have mouths that open up and they sing. That's not what that is. And that's a common accusation that's made against the dispensationalists. Well, you believe everything's literal. No, I understand figures of speech and when they're trying to create word pictures for me to understand, especially because the Hebrew language is very picturesque and poetic in places where it's given. So no, we don't, we don't do that. How about this? Everybody turn to Revelation. I was talking to somebody the other day. Man, I was scared to death of the book of Revelation. I finally read it. It's great. Praise the Lord. We don't have to be scared of this book. It's the Word of God. Revelation chapter 11, verse 8. Now get ready. You guys are getting ready to interpret prophecy. I'm going to tell you a secret. It ain't hard. Okay? And I mean that from the very depths of my Kentucky heart. Look what it says in verse 8. This is the two witnesses which the Antichrist slays. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city which mystically is called. Everybody see mystically there? Notice that the marginal note says spiritually. Mystically, spiritually, it is called, look what it says, Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Was Jesus crucified in Sodom? Was He crucified in Egypt? Aren't you thankful for the little interpretive help that John gave at that time, saying it was mystically or spiritually called this? Where was Jesus crucified? Jerusalem. Where does this take place? Jerusalem. It's simple. In fact, we could stand to take prophecy a lot more literally maybe than what many people do. And the opposing viewpoint to this is, is yeah, they believe in literal interpretation absolutely, but for some reason when they come encountering with some prophetic sections, it ends up getting spiritualized for some of the reasons I'll share with you in just a second. Here it is. The Scriptures are a progressive revelation. Meaning that beginning at Genesis, with more and more being revealed as you progress to Revelation, you're going to simply learn more in Revelation 22 than you do in Genesis 1 if you read it all the way through. It develops, and that's the way that God wants to do it. If He revealed everything about what He wanted in the Word of God in Genesis 1, all of our minds would melt and pop off of our heads, okay? The next one, number four. The Old Testament, the Old Testament is sufficient to stand on its own terms. It does not need to be redefined or reinterpreted by the New Testament. We start in the Old Testament, we move to the New Testament. The opposing viewpoint would want to immediately go to the New Testament as the basis for how we should understand the Old Testament. What I would say is, is no. What we want to do is, is we want to get what was going on progressively first and understand it as it comes up. This is what, if you guys have ever heard us talk about the law first mentions. If you're reading through the Bible, where does this idea of covenant first come up? Interestingly enough, it comes up in Genesis 6, not in Genesis 1. So as it unfolds itself, 
we begin to learn more about this concept because it begins developing out. Well, I don't have to go back and redefine anything in the Old Testament by the New Testament. I use the Old Testament, and the author totally knew what they were talking about that time because they were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just as the New Testament authors. And instead, we develop our theology off of that into how it's better manifesting itself. Now, the New Testament might say, hey, we've got more to say about that, and so there's additional truth that we're bringing to that situation. But at no time is James or Peter or John or even Jesus going to reach into the Old Testament and say, yeah, I know that's what you thought it meant back there, but I'm actually telling you that's not what it meant at all. And it actually means this now. If that's the case, the Old Testament cannot stand. And if I recall correctly, Jesus and all the apostles and everybody in the church were using the Old Testament as their Bible when they were communicating doctrine to people. So you can't do that. The fifth one, the scriptures teach a distinction between Israel and the church with both having a future in Jesus' kingdom. Both. The church is not the new Israel. God has not abandoned his plans for those ethnic people. He will bring the nation back in. Romans 11.26 is very clear. There is a future salvation for Israel. In this way, all Israel will be saved. That's not the church. God does not fudge words. That's very important. And the last one. The kingdom of God is the pinnacle purpose of God in history and eternity. This is what He's doing. It started with the mandate to let them be fruitful, multiply, and have dominion over the earth. It is a rulership motive that God puts forward. Why? Because He's entrusting a stewardship to Adam and Eve at the very beginning. So salvation is important. Never want to downplay that at all. But salvation and redemption is not the core thing of which all things culminate in. Salvation is important, but it is only one area leading to the intended end of the absolute rule of King Jesus over all things. In fact, we've seen this before, but let's turn there. Daniel chapter 7. We'll finish with this passage here. Verses 13 and 14, this is the thesis statement of Scripture. This is what God is doing. This is where everything is going. Excellent verse to memorize. Excellent passage. Daniel chapter 7. If you got somebody new, maybe new to the Bible that's next to you, it's having a little bit of trouble locating it. If you wouldn't mind, you're a more seasoned individual, reach over and help them get that, please, to show them this. Look at verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came upon the ancient of days. I believe that the son of man is Jesus, the son. The Ancient of Days is the Father. And He was presented before Him. The Son was presented before the Father. And to Him, the Son, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language, Jew and Gentile, does not matter, might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. God uses the dispensations to reveal that the deep-seated reason for man's complete failure governmentally is because of his innate wickedness and depravity, which causes him to leave regeneration out of all of his governmental notions. Now here's what we're going to do. Over the next, I'm hoping, three Sundays, maybe four, we're going to be covering a couple of dispensations each time and just see how God unfolds his government plan. But every time that a stewardship is entrusted to people, they fail. 
And the reason is right here listed. They never opt for the fact that they need new life. And only the Spirit of God can give that. Regeneration is to be born again, to be given God's life within someone when they hear the gospel and believe. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. We always opt for, we need a better plan. We need a better department of defense. We need a better department of education. Well, if, here it is, guys, get ready. The hate mail's coming in. My email address is on the back of our bulletin. Here we go. If I would just vote for the right person, I don't say this mean, understand this, but rethink in your heart real quick. Who is your Savior? His plan is much bigger than the United States of America. Jesus is going to rule it one day. Okay, so understand this. There has to be new life. God's life. In order for any governmental structure to stand. And this is why we can't just nominate Christian politicians. We can't do that. It doesn't work that way. Are you saying we shouldn't be involved in the civil process? No. I'm saying vote with your Bible. That's what I'm saying. Let God's wisdom and word guide how you involve yourself in culture, in other people's lives, in whatever it may be. Because he is the end-all, be-all in his inerrant word about those things. It alone is authoritative. So, this is the problem. Wickedness and depravity rule and let me say this not just in the earthly realm but also in the heavenly realm we're going to see that as well the greatest problem that god has going on there with people is he's beckoning with these celestial beings you know what's right do it you know what it is to have justice do it stop catering to elites here stop doing all these unrighteous wicked things care for the poor love these people take care of the fatherless Bring those orphans in and love them. And what you're doing instead is you're facilitating and encouraging a society that promotes your own worship. And because of that, he actually tells these celestial beings, you will die like men. And then I will inherit the world and I'll deal with it as it ought to be. This all culminates in Jesus' kingdom, his future kingdom. Last quote. Everything that God is doing has a forward-looking goal. There is a coming administration or dispensation, a fullness of times, where God will head up or sum up all things in Christ. When this kingdom occurs, all things are summed up or headed up in Christ. This involves all things in the universe, whether in heaven or on earth, whether it is angels or humans, spiritual things or material matters. All things will come under the headship of Christ. This is what God is doing in His plan the ages this is why our time as the church matters if we've shown up to church and all we care about is what we're going to get out of something if we become very selfish if we're hey new person i don't care if you're your first sunday here it's my seat okay (laughs) chill out man the body of christ is greater than that it's bigger than that it's much more wonderful the scriptures display much more wonderful purposes for the body of christ and how we exist with one another, and especially what that does of preaching about God's grace in a future time. We live in an incredible time in history. So what I'm looking forward to is over the next three or four Sundays, we're going to put this whole thing together and hopefully give some inkling understanding so that you will have much more confidence in your Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It won't any longer be a big intimidating book. I don't even know where to start that kind of thing. And we'll hopefully unfold all of what God's storyline is because his son is the end of all things. So.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm thankful that You are the coming King. Grateful, God, for Your mercy in giving us the Word of God. Pray, Lord, You give to our minds understanding that You would illuminate to our hearts and our minds all that we need to know. We thank You, God, that You speak clearly in Your Word, that we are to handle it carefully, that You have set forward in no cloudy terms, really, exactly what You look to do. And Lord, when we get hopeless in this life, when we get discouraged, when we get overcome with fear or anxiety about the things that are going on, we need an eternal perspective. We need to have our eyes fixed where Christ is seated right now at Your right hand. And looking forward with our hearts, I don't know, just, just I don't even know how to say this, with our hearts ready for the day when your son assumes the throne and rules forever. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done in giving yourself for us and redeeming us. And thank you that there are grand and great and lofty plans to be unfolded and to be executed because of you doing them, not us, but you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.